Well, brothers and sisters, in the last chapter, as we have it, of the last letter that the Apostle Paul penned before his head literally was severed from his body, and he went into the presence of the Lord that he loved, he sounds this warning in the ears of his spiritual son and student, Timothy. The words of 2 Timothy 4, 2-4. He says to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, at all times, when it's convenient, when it's not. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Because there is a God in this universe, but also a devil, there is truth and there are lies. There's not only faithful teaching, but there is false teaching. This has always been the case, and it is to this day. And one of the ways that Jesus loved his own to the end, as it says in John 13, is by faithfully warning them of false teachers in their midst. One of the requirements of pastors is not only that they be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, but that they be able to refute those who contradict. And when the book of Ecclesiastes says there is nothing new under the sun, it applies to this. There's always going to be false teaching. And though it may vary in particulars, it's always going to be characterized by some of the same marks. Nothing new under the sun. And this morning, we're going to examine the warning that Jesus gives about the false teachers in his day, the scribes. And this warning comes at an appropriate time. You remember as we're studying through the Gospel of Mark in chapter 12 in particular, Jesus is in the temple. It's several days before he is to be killed. And his enemies are coming at him one after another. And they're trying all kinds of tactics to try to undermine his credibility in the eyes of the people, try to find some grounds of accusation against him so that they can arrest him and ultimately do away with him. And they try different tactics. They try intimidation. They try flattery. They try ridicule. And the last guy who comes to Jesus comes with some sincerity. But in every case, Jesus answers with perfect divine wisdom and shuts them all down. And he occupies the field alone. But then, after being on the defensive, we noted last time he goes on the offensive. And he challenges the scribes among them. According to Matthew, he addressed the Pharisees in particular, who had Pharisaic scribes, but the larger crowd was listening on. And he goes on the offensive and he challenges the scribes regarding the identity of the Messiah. The scribes recognized that the Messiah, the Christ, was to be a son of David, a descendant of David. But they didn't have a correct understanding of what kind of a king he would be. David was a military leader. David was a political king. And they had the idea that the Messiah, the son or descendant of David, was going to be a king like David. He's going to be a political leader. He's going to be a military leader, an earthly king. And oh, how they wanted that. Because they hated being under the thumb of the Romans and they wanted someone to come and deliver them militarily and politically from the Romans. 
But Jesus makes clear that your idea of the son of David is much too small. He says, David called him Lord. And Yahweh said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. What Jesus is saying is that this coming son of David, this Messiah, is not going to be merely an earthly king, a political king, a military leader like David was. This David's Lord, David's descendant is David's Lord. And he will be far more majestic, far more glorious than David ever, ever, ever was. He will rule as a king, but he will rule from the right hand of God. And of course, the implication is that he himself is that son of David. He is that Messiah. But the scribes did not believe that. They did not see in Jesus the predicted, prophesied Messiah and son of David. They rejected him. And so here is the Messiah, the long prophesied Messiah, the Christ, the prophet, the priest, the king, the only savior of sinners right in their midst in the flesh. But the scribes, rather than pointing people to him, pointed them away from him. They were false teachers. And so in some of his final public words there in the temple on Tuesday, he sounds a warning to his followers against these false teachers, the scribes. Our text is Mark 12, 38 to 40. If you're not already there, please turn there. In his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. The scribes were the teachers. They were the ones who were paid to study the scriptures, interpret the scriptures, and instruct the people in the scriptures. And concerning them, Jesus says, beware. That word in the original means to turn your thoughts to or direct your mind to, but it has a preposition away from. Turn your minds away from them. Don't pay them any mind. Don't pay them any heed. Beware of the scribes. Now, what was it about the scribes that brought forth? Often when there's a fixation with the outward, the external, it points to the neglect of the internal. How would we make application to our day? The scribes were trying to project a pious, respectable outward appearance by walking around in their white robes, delighting to do that. Jesus is implying that their holy garments pointed to a lack of concern for a holy heart. And when we look at spiritual leaders and we look at religion, Christianity, churches, I think you can make a correlation that to the, 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 to the degree that there's a focus on the external, vestments and holy furniture and altars and candles, to that degree, there's a neglect of heart religion. The external seems to be a cover-up for what is lacking in the internal. And we need to beware of that. Another symptom that something's wrong under the hood with these scribes is they craved expressions of respect. Look at verse 38 again. He was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long roads, 
robes, and they like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. The scribes were venerated. They were given unbounded respect and awe. Their words possessed nearly sovereign authority. And when they walked through the marketplace, when they walked through the bazaar, it was commanded, demanded of the people that they rise respectfully. I I read that only tradesmen who were busy at some job that would endanger them were exempt from this duty. When you saw a scribe, you had to rise respectfully. And they took delight in that. They just drank it in. They loved it. And you can just imagine them looking at people condescendingly, and approvingly and beaming with delight as people fawned over them and recognized them as these holy men. They loved to be shown the tokens of respect. Now, let's ask the question, is it wrong to show respect for those who are in authority, even spiritual authority? The answer from the Bible is no. Paul says in Romans 13, and we studied that in some detail recently, render to all what is due them, honor to whom honor is due. And that's in the context of civil government. There are civil authorities which are called ministers of God, and and they're to be shown appropriate honor. Honor is to be shown to spiritual leaders in the church. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders, submit to them, They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And then it says, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. I say this even as a pastor, that it is your duty when pastors are faithful. Ten verses earlier, it says, imitate those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. If they're speaking the word of God to you, then they are worthy of respect. And it's really to your benefit when you submit to biblical teaching through faithful proven spiritual leaders, right? So it's not wrong to show respect for people in authority and even for people in spiritual authority, even for pastors, spiritual leaders. The problem here with these scribes is that they craved that respect and honor, and it seems that they desired it for the sake of their ego. And it was it, what it conveyed was they had this sense of deservedness, They had this air of superiority. They had this inflated sense of their own importance, as if the people exist to serve them rather than they exist to serve the people. The Apostle Paul had a totally different disposition. It comes out when he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. The people to whom he ministered, he didn't see them as serving him. He said, I exist to serve you. You don't exist to serve me. Later in that letter, 2 Corinthians 12, 14, he says, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. He says, I'm not in this apostolic pastoral ministry to get anything from you. I'm not in it to get anything material from you. I'm not in it even to get praise to feed my ego. I'm not in it for myself. I don't desire what is yours. I desire you. I desire your good and your benefit and your profit. That's the Apostle Paul. But these men were using their position as scribes, as a platform to feed their own pride and egos because they saw the people as their servants 
And they saw themselves as lords over the people. In this regard, the Apostle Paul continues to be our example when he says in 2 Corinthians 1.24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. And of course, the greatest exemplar when it comes to not being served, but serving, is our Lord Jesus Christ, who says in Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Lord of glory, worthy of all honor and, and respect, came not to be served, but to serve. Well, how would this apply to us? Because as there were false teachers like the scribes in Jesus' day, there are false teachers today. We want to recognize the symptoms in order to be warned against them. I would say beware of any pastor or spiritual leader, beginning with your own pastors here, who crave expressions of respect and praise out of an inflated sense of their own importance. You say, well, how will I know? One of the indicators is when they are shown disrespect. How do they respond? You'll soon know whether a man has a delicate ego and whether he is, as one pastor said, like a big, sore red toe when he's disrespected. That will reveal whether there's a prominent ego or not. Again, the Apostle Paul is our wonderful example in telling his young understudy, Timothy, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If a man is more concerned to protect his own fragile ego than to do you spiritual good, that's a shepherd who is not good for your soul. But if I can take it a little further, I'm going to take a little liberty here and, and apply it beyond the pastor. Some of you are single people and you're looking to be married. There's a warning here against an egotistical pastor who's craving respect and honor and demanding it. Let me say, you shouldn't be under such a pastor, but you shouldn't marry such a spouse. Now, the husband is commanded to love his wife. How many of you wives want to be loved? Shake your head or elbow your husband. How many of you want to be loved? You do, don't you? And, and you should be. The wife is commanded to respect her husband. How many of you husbands want to be respected by your wives? Nod your head, elbow your wife. You do, right? It's right. God commands that you give respect and that you give love. You wives are not content that your husband said, look, I told you I loved you when I married you, and I'll let you know if I change my mind. That doesn't fly, right? But it's one thing to desire that legitimately. It's another thing to crave it and demand it. Because if you marry someone who craves that inordinately, you know what will happen. That person is going to expect from you things that only God can give and you will not be able to fill their empty love cup or respect cup. So don't marry a man or a woman who's got an ego and demands certain respect or demands certain things. They will require of you more than you can humanly give. Marry a person who's filled up with God 
and properly desires to be loved, to be respected, but finds their main sense of satisfaction in their relationship with the Lord. And the living water that he gives, I'll give you a little preview of what Brother Sean's going to preach on next week, living water, okay? You can't supply the living water to your husband or wife, only Christ can. So I give that as kind of a bonus application. It has nothing to do with the text, but it does in principle. But here's another um, symptom that something's wrong with these scribes. They took to themselves positions of honor, verse 39. And they Still working with that verb, they, they like, they delight in walking around in long robes. They delight in getting respectful greetings. And they delight in the chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. You know, when people had a banquet in that day, it was an honor for them to have a scribe present with his pupils. And he would sit in a position above the others where he can see everyone else and everyone else would be facing him. And here's another symptom that signals danger. Why is he taking the position, delighting in the position of honor in the banquet? It's obviously, again, because of his own pride and ego. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Remember, I won't take the time to read it, but in Luke 14, 7 to 11, Jesus tells a parable. He says, when you're invited to a banquet, don't take the high seat because the host may have to come and say, I'm sorry, you need to sit lower, sit lower. Take the low seat so that the host will come and invite you to take a higher position. And then he couples it. He adds, he who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Why do these men take positions of honor for themselves? Because they think that's what they deserve. I'm more worthy than the others. I'm more important than the others. I'm more honorable than the others. The problem with that is that pride goes before stumbling. Why shouldn't you put yourself under a spiritual leader who has that pride of position? Well, because Jesus said, Every disciple, when he's fully trained, will be like his master. And if you sit under a proud pastor, you will become proud like him, because pride begets pride. I think it's safe to say that in some cases where there's a philosophy of a single pastor system, there's a danger of pride and ego taking over when there's one man in charge. God ordains a plurality of leaders. I told you last week when we ordained Sean, I need pastors. And thankfully, we've entered on more of the biblical norm now. And that's good, because now I need to make a decision with my fellow pastor. We need to listen to one another. We need to defer to one another and make decisions together. That's good for our humility. And I ask you to pray for us. On the one hand, I couldn't imagine a man more humble to work with than Brother Sean. But pray that God would give us the grace of humility to listen to one another, defer to one another, have a, a unified mind so that we would represent, we would be a little picture in microcosm of the unity that is to characterize the whole body. If the eldership isn't unified, how can you expect the body of believers to be unified? So I bear that weight. We are to be a, a model of unity between ourselves and as God as other elders among ourselves, an example to the unity that should characterize the whole body. But sometimes when there's one pastor, it can tend to ego and pride. He's the one man in charge. But the final symptom is they made pretentious displays of religiosity. Verse 40 at the end 
says, for appearance sake, they make long prayers. Long prayers. These are men who are saying, look at me. Look at my long robes. Look at me sitting in the place of honor in the banquet. Look at me. And now it's saying, listen to me. Listen to me because I've got more to say than everybody else. And I say it more eloquently than anyone else. And so they make long prayers for appearance sake. Now, Jesus exposed that in the Sermon on the Mount when he said of the Pharisees that they do their religion in order to be seen by men. I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But in application, we can say, beware of spiritual leaders who make a pretentious display of their own spirituality. Either they flaunt their knowledge or they try to flaunt their eloquence. They're calling attention to themselves and not to God and the word. All of these symptoms point to pride, ego, and lording it over. And if I've become convinced of one thing in more than 40 years of ministry, it is that if there's one grace that needs to characterize, should characterize all Christians, but must characterize every shepherd, it is humility. Because one of the few things that Jesus pointed to in himself was not only servanthood, but I am meek and lowly in heart. And a proud shepherd, a proud under-shepherd of Jesus Christ is an oxymoron. It's an utter contradiction. And you can hold me accountable for that. If I am not a humble man, I am not worthy of any following. And so they had all these evidences of pride and ego and self-focus. But then consider the ungodly conduct that confirms the danger. If these things were symptomatic, saying something's wrong with these guys, this really nails it. What is their conduct that really confirms the fact that these are not good men, these are dangerous men? Well, verse 40 says, they devour widows' houses. What? They devour widows' houses? What does God think about widows? Well, throughout the Bible, it screams at us, as to God's special concern for classes of people such as widows. Exodus 22, 22 says this. What does God think about widows? You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Enough said. You mess with a widow and God's going to kill you. God cares for the widows. And I could read other texts, but but let's move quickly to um, the writings, the Proverbs and and the Psalms and and Proverbs um, chapter 15 and verse 25. We read of what God thinks of the widow when he says, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud and but he will establish the boundary of the widow. God cares about the widow along with the orphan and the stranger and the poor. In Psalm 146 and verse 9, the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. And you come to the New Testament, and what about Jesus? 
Well, he comes upon a little funeral procession and it's a widow who is, has lost her only son and moved with compassion. He raises him up and gives him back to his mother who is bereft. That's what the word widow means, bereft. Jesus had a heart for widows. What does James say? True religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So here are these scribes. They're called to teach the word of God. They're called to represent God to the people. What does God think about widows? He loves widows. He cares for the widows. He protects the widows. He judges those who harm widows. And what are they doing? They're devouring widows' houses. We don't know how, but somehow they were taking advantage of them. Oh, yeah, we'll help you with your husband's estate. And they were fleecing them, taking advantage of these poor, bereft women and yet they're posing as spiritual leaders? That should be pretty clear to the people. Here are men supposed to represent God, but the way they're treating widows is antithetical to the heart and mind of God. They are not representing the heart of God and the heart of Jesus. They are misrepresenting God. So beware of religious leaders, pastors, who claim to represent God and to speak God's word and teach you God's ways, but who lead you away from God's ways and not to them. And let's take a couple of applications. What does that mean in our day? Well, what do you look to look for in our day? Well, does God say about his word that it's God-breathed? That thus saith the Lord that the Bible is the God-breathed, inerrant, infallible word of God? Beware of any spiritual leaders who have a lower view of God's word than God and Jesus have of, of their word. Does God's word teach that Christianity is supernatural religion? That God interacts with human society and he performs miracles? He performed miracles in the Old Testament. Jesus was miraculously born of a virgin. He performs miracles. He's miraculously raised from the dead. Beware of classic liberalism and modernism that wants to bleed the New Testament and the Bible of the supernatural. That's not Christianity. Does God give clear teaching about the gospel? That is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I was listening to, and I recommend it to you, the MacArthur Center podcast. The latest one is MacArthur and Rome. And it tells about 1994 when there was ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics together. And some 20 evangelicals had signed something that we can, we can kind of find a unity with the Roman Catholic Church. And there were three men that stood against that, John MacArthur, James Kennedy, and R.C. Sproul. And they said no. No, because... Yeah, we may be co-belligerents when it comes to abortion and those things, but when it comes to the gospel, we are poles apart. Protestantism, the Bible says salvation is, justification is by faith alone. Catholic Church says, oh yeah, salvation is by grace, but you need to have imparted righteousness and you need to follow the sacraments and its works. And at one point, and I've heard it before, R.C. Sproul gets up on the table stands up on the table and he points his finger at one of the other men and he says, I don't think you get it. It's about whether you go to heaven or hell. Praise God. He was a, a wonderfully warm-hearted, loving man, but he was a lion when it came to defending the truth. 
And anybody who preaches other than salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, flee that so-called shepherd. And also, make sure he's teaching that the response to the gospel is repentance and faith in Jesus, not only as Savior, but Lord. It's not a matter of praying a prayer and inviting Jesus into your heart and accepting him as Savior. It's bowing before his lordship as well. If he's not your Savior, if he's not your Lord, he's not your Savior. Is God, is God clear about sexual morality? What is acceptable and what is an abomination in our day? Well, he's not a faithful shepherd who is not standing on biblical morality and decrying the sexual perversion in our day and calling it what God calls it. Such a one is not a faithful shepherd. Is God clear about the specific roles he gives to men and women, equally in the image of God, equally saved in Jesus Christ, but certain roles? I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over men. Run from pastors who are putting women in the pulpit as pastors. They're not faithful representatives of the God of Scripture. Is God's word clear about the eternal destinies of people, the eternality of hell? Run from any shepherd who would deny that. And in our day, as I've been teaching, the greatest threat to the gospel is the neo-Marxism taking form of critical theory, social justice, wokeism. There may be some faithful guides in other areas, but if men are not sounding a clear note of warning about this which is threatening the gospel, question as to not their Christianity necessarily, but their discernment. So there are things that should warn us in our day. Third, the man-pleasing motive that underlies the danger. He points to the symptoms, something's wrong with these guys. He points to their conduct, which should confirm the way they're treating widows, says they're not representatives of God. And now he talks about their motive. Only God knows the motive. Why do they do what they do? He says, for appearance sake. What's their problem? Their problem is they're doing it to be seen by men. Their whole motivation is horizontal and not vertical. I want to be seen by men. They're try- the word in the Greek, when it says appearance, is prophesis, and it comes from a verb, uh, profino, which means to shine forth, to show. These men want to put on a good show in front of people, but they're not living unto the Lord. That's dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Why is it dangerous when people, when spiritual leaders want to please men and not God? The Bible calls it the fear of man. It's dangerous for this reason. As someone said years ago, if a pastor fears you, he does not love you. Think about that. If I fear you and I desperately need you to like me, I'm going to tell you what I think you want to hear, but I'm not going to necessarily tell you what you need to hear. Remember Paul's word to Timothy, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience, because men are going to go around finding preachers who will tickle their ears and tell them the things they want to hear, but they will not be the things they need to hear. And if I fear you, I don't love you. If I'm afraid of crossing you, I'm going to tell you what I think you want to hear, not what you need to hear. If I love you because I fear God, I will tell you what you need to hear. Now, if I'm also an apt representative of God, I'll tell it in a Christ-like way. 
with kindness and gentleness. But Peter said, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. The Apostle Paul is a wonderful example of that, as in so many things. He is the model pastor, as well as missionary. And in Galatians, in in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, it's a very small thing that I be judged by you or by any human court. It's the Lord who judges me. I'm not nearly so concerned what other people think of me as I am about what God knows about me. But don't you love Galatians 1, where he says, though we are an angel from heaven should preach to you any other gospel than the one we preach, let him be anathema. And then he turns around and says, um, in Galatians 1.10, he says, am I, am I now seeking the favor of man or of God? If I am still striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He's just warned them, if you follow this doctrine, you're, it's damnable. It, does that sound like a people pleaser? No. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. They're antithetical. You can't primarily aim to please God and please men at the same time. But finally, another reason to be warned and alarmed against these false teachers is the severer judgment that heightens the danger. Again, back in the text in verse 40, he says at the end, these will receive greater condemnation. Remember, James said those who teach will receive a greater condemnation, greater judgment. Why? Well, these were the guys paid to study the scriptures. They had more light. And the more light you have and the more light you spurn, the more serious and stern your judgment. Plus, it's one thing to be wrong for yourself. That's bad enough. But if I teach error, then I'm wrong for a lot of people. And that heightens my wrong and it it increases my, my condemnation. And he says, these guys are going to get a a, a more severe judgment. Now, if they're already not convinced to run from these teachers, that should bend over the nail. You want to follow teachers who are slated for judgment? I mean, if you're going to a doctor and then you find out that this doctor never went to medical school, he never was approved by the American Medical Association, he never passed the medical boards, he's not certified, are you going to continue going? If you're going to a financial counselor and you find out that he's been indicted for fraud, are you going to continue to get financial counsel from him? How much more should you run from a spiritual teacher whom Jesus says is going to receive a stricter judgment? He's unapproved by God. Run from such a one. So, brothers and sisters, as I close... Make sure that you put yourself and your family under teachers who are approved of God and who will do you good. Most importantly, though, we need to put ourselves under the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, the chief shepherd, Jesus. And if you're not a believer, and I never presume that everyone is a believer, you need to get yourself under the chief shepherd, Jesus. He needs to become the shepherd of your soul. How? By realizing I need a shepherd. I need a savior. Repent from your self-centered, self-willed life. Put your trust in Jesus alone to forgive you of your sins and to change you. Let him become your shepherd and guide so that you live a Christ-governed, a Christ-controlled life. Then you're on your way to heaven. 
but most of you are Christians. Jesus is your chief shepherd. He is your good shepherd. According to Jesus and his word, you need to put yourself under human under shepherds. You know that, right? And so I tell you what maybe you don't want to hear, but you may need to hear. You need to join a church and put yourself under human under shepherds. Now, you need to take your time, make sure it's a safe place. But once you know enough and you say, yeah, I've been here long enough. I trust the teaching. It's from the word of God. I, I think it's a healthy, safe place. At some point, you need to cross the line and cast in your lot and say, and go to the altar and say, I, I will, I do, I commit myself. If you're not convinced of church membership, would you give me an opportunity to convince you? Because I think there are powerful lines of biblical reasoning to show us that we need to do that. Well, let's 